Welcome to The Pen and the Yod. This week, Rabbi Michael Siegel of Anshamit Synagogue in Chicago talks with author Jonathan Eig about Passover. When does Israel fit into the story of Passover? Hey, Jonathan. Hi, Rabbi. Is your family planning a uh, big Seder celebration? I'd say we're planning a celebration. It's not going to be too big, but we are excited. We are always excited about this. We don't have everybody home with us this year, but we will do our best to uh, make it festive and to get into the spirit, even with just uh, part of the family gathered. I have to say that just the prospect of sitting around the table with other people this year is a, is a huge change. And I think we're, we're really excited about the notion of actually sharing Seder and being in the same place with, with family members and friends. Absolutely. It's been hard the last couple of years. It's hard doing so many of these things. We've all had to adapt so many parts of our lives. But, you know, for me and for, I think for many of us, the Seder is one of the the favorite events of the year. Um, it's it's not just, you know, religious, it's family, it's, uh, it's storytelling, it's fun. It's really, you know, something I've missed the last couple of years. And I'm excited to be doing it again with, with, uh, with our family and with some friends. Let, let me ask you this. What do you think the goal of the Seder is? What is it that we are celebrating on this night? What's the focus of our attention? Well, to me, it feels like a celebration of freedom, first of all, I think. And then second, it's tradition. It's it's the way, this way storytelling has helped us to survive as a people, to keep this story going through the thousands of years. Uh, yeah, that's always really moving to me, that, that this ritual has helped keep alive our faith. That is amazing. I mean, from the very opening chapters, when we receive the commandment to have the Seder, the idea was to bring the people together, to concretize them through ritual and through story. And you said that you noted freedom. So there is the freedom from physical slavery. What's the goal of all freedom for what purpose is the question that I don't think we really um, ask all that often. You know, what are we supposed to do with this freedom? Well, I mean, freedom is a pretty good uh, end in and of itself because not everybody enjoys it and we didn't uh, enjoy it for many many years as slaves in egypt we learned about freedom from the from the wanting of it from the lack of it right mm -hmm. like it was mm -hmm. it was something we desired but didn't know what it meant and even now we still talk about what it means to be free i think that's right and especially with what is going on in the world there is uh, a multitude of opportunities to talk about freedom and what freedom means in 2022 but if you kind of contextualize the story, what the story is telling us is that the creator of the universe decided that a minuscule people needed to be free and brought the greatest empire of its time to its knees for that outcome to take place, right? I think that's the basic understanding of the story, right? Right. Is that just because God was in the mood or, I mean, is this like a Lone Ranger story where the Lone Ranger kind of, you know, gallops in and saves the day and then off into the sunset, you know, high silver and away. And this is what God is doing too. I said, well, don't mention it, ma'am. I mean, what, hmm. What's the purpose of this? Why would this God care about this people enough to give them freedom? And what about everybody else in the world? And, 
I, there are other slaves out there. There are other slave people. So why this people and what's the purpose of this act? Well, it's a great question that I certainly want to believe, and I do believe that God wanted all people to be free and that he saw mm -hmm. all people as being uh, made in his image and all people uh, being of equal value. Maybe he's looking for somebody to shine a light and to lead everybody toward freedom. And, you know, he's fortunately picked us to uh, picked um, the Israelites to start with, right? Right. And so this notion of being a light to the nations and, you know, Israel being a witness to God in the world is ultimately for the purpose of, of um, helping people discover not only the value of every human life, but also the power of freedom, both physical and spiritual freedom. So I think that's a great answer. And I think that, that, that the tradition is also supports that. Because what the next stop is after the splitting of the sea is Sinai. So in a way, the Torah is a book about how to create a society which will inculcate a, a deeper understanding of the value of human life that leads us to the respect for each other's freedoms. So the Torah has that in mind. Yeah, and I think it does shine a light. And uh, you can see throughout history where people of, of many cultures and many religions have invoked the image of Moses uh, in their own journeys toward freedom. Gandhi was called India's Moses, and Martin Luther King was called uh, America's Moses, and uh, Alabama's Moses when he started out. So that light has shone brightly. Right. It's interesting that both Freud and Herzl also had an affinity towards Moses. And in a way, I think both of them saw themselves as people who were leading their people to freedom, right? From For Freud, it was kind of the psychological bonds that people are held by. And for Herzl, it was kind of the Zionistic vision of a place where Jews could live freely as Jews in their own land. The idea of Moses is a powerful one. And the guidebook, as I said before, is the Torah. But what's interesting is that the Torah perceives that there is a specific place where Israel is going to create those freedoms and be a light to the, the world, and that is the land of Israel. In other words, the goal wasn't to get out of Egypt. The goal, which, not to say that that's not a good thing, and the goal wasn't to get to Mount Sinai. The goal was to get out of Egypt, go, go to Mount Sinai, and then practice the laws of Sinai in the land of Israel. And I want to suggest to you that that is lost on us at our Passover seders. Hmm. The, the idea that we're going somewhere. In most seders that I've attended, people are very open to talk about the belief in freedom and the importance of freedom. But this notion of getting to the land of Israel is not a focus for us. Yeah, that's an interesting argument. And I think um, you're right. You know, we kind of treat Israel as if it's um, a theory or that it's the promised land in a figurative sense and not a literal sense. Uh, you know, even though we're singing about it and we're talking about it, we sometimes forget that it was meant to be concrete. It's meant to be concrete. I mean, you think about it from the structure of the Torah, Abraham receives the call, but the call 
if go out from your land, from your father's house and all of that, Genesis 12, that call is embedded with the idea that you're going to leave because I'm going to show you this land that will be given to your descendants as a eternal inheritance, right? From the very start, it's God, land, people. There's a God, there's a people, there's the descendants of Abraham, and there's a land that those things really are brought together with Torah as well, obviously. But it's an interesting issue. And by the way, if we lived uh, when the temple still stood, we would observe Passover by going to the land of Israel. It's a pilgrimage festival. Right. And the three words that are added to the end of the Seder were put in in the Middle Ages somewhere, because they're assuming that you're not in Jerusalem. Because if you're living in Jerusalem, then I don't know that you need to have this line, right? I am in Jerusalem. And so you can say, well, God willing, I'll be there again. But this is a kind of a diaspora line, right? We're, we're, so we're living in Timbuktu or Berdichev or London or Chicago or wherever. But we're saying next year in Jerusalem, the Messiah will come. And when the Messiah comes and redemption comes our way, we're going to be in the land of Israel. So Israel is really central to the notion of freedoms. Where do you yeah. practice those freedoms? I, I assure you that that lesson isn't lost, but for our brothers and sisters celebrating Passover in Israel. I think that's really interesting. And I think it's really worth thinking about this year. I, I'm going to do some thinking about it. What I'm thinking about is how important that must have been uh, to the people who were recently freed, uh, who wandered, you know, in the deserts, who felt like they didn't have a home, right? You're, you know, you're being promised freedom, but what does it mean if your freedom is inchoate, if it means that you don't know where you're going to end up, if you're just being freed to, to scatter in the wind? You know, that's a very different kind of a promise of freedom, but no, we're being promised something firm. We're being promised a home. You know, you think about some of the others who've sought freedom over the years, you know, when when slaves in America sought freedom, some people suggested that they might go back to Africa, but the, but there was no promise made of where they would go if and when they became free. Um, here, there's a promise being made, and that's I think that's really powerful. I agree, and because ultimately, on a night of questions, I suppose one of the questions is, okay, why aren't you living in the land of Israel? I was talking to a woman the other day who was telling me how she grew up in pre-state Palestine. And, you know, and she's lived there. And then after the state was established, she lived in Jerusalem. But as a child, her memories were of Jerusalem being a divided city. That even though you were in the land of Israel, you there were places you couldn't go. You couldn't go to the old city. It was Jordanian until 1967. And she remembers the barbed wire and the danger of even getting close to that barbed wire. And I was thinking as she was talking, I said, well, the, for that period of time, you know, you could only dream of praying at the Kotel. You could only dream of going to those central places. But for most of our history, Israel has been pretty inaccessible, but it's not anymore. So the question is, why aren't we living in the land of Israel? If our, if our story is leading us to the land of Israel, why aren't we there? I think applies to to all of us, right? And but I think it's an interesting one. I'd be interested to know how you you'd respond to it. Yeah, it's a fascinating question. You know, um, 
for my great grandparents coming here felt like the promised land because it it literally seemed like the freest place on earth, uh, the safest, most wonderful, most promising place on earth in 1903 when they were, you know, leaving Europe. And to them, must have felt like the promised land that uh, then Israel wasn't an option yet. Once, you know, we become Americans, we start to lose sight of the uh, promised land. It feels generation after generation, maybe a little less urgent. I don't think it's something that people think about actively in general. Right. That, that's... right. In part because we are so comfortable here and we feel so fortunate to have so much freedom. There's nothing compelling us to to think about it in, in those terms. And that is a really interesting question. I was listening to a podcast recently. Danny Gordas was talking with Hillel Halkin. Hillel Halkin is um, a really remarkable writer. And Danny is a, a very thoughtful, he's a thought leader in Israel. I uh, run Shalem College, and they were talking, and Hillel Halkin wrote a book in the mid-70s, Letters to my, my American Jewish Friend. And basically, it was an argument in the mid-70s for someone who had made Aliyah in 1970 to kind of an imagined friend trying to convince them to make Aliyah. And they were kind of talking about the book, and then at one point, they said, Danny said, asked uh, Hillel Halkin, I said, if you knew that Iran was going to drop a nuclear weapon or that, you know, on Israel, would you leave? And he said, no. And Danny said, well, I agree with you. They both live in Israel. And, and they asked, well, why? And he said, because I can't imagine living, any, literally living anywhere else. Their identity is that deep. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's where we're coming from or you or I are coming from. I mean, obviously, because if it was, we would be there, chances right, are. Right. But what does that mean? And what does Israel mean to us today? And how does Israel fit into the story, to our story? For the Passover Seder, it's the goal of the story, right? It's like if you're setting off to go to, I know you're going to Washington, and you got to O'Hare and said, you know, O'Hare's a pretty nice place. Let's just spend Passover here. <laughs> I think that's, well, that does make zero sense. Come on. Right. Right. But in a sense, that's what we're doing is like, well, you know, I, this is OK in Chicago. Right. But the yeah. story wasn't supposed to, you know, your ticket said Washington. Our ticket from the time of Abraham says Israel. So it's a fascinating conversation. And we are exercising our freedom in that way. Right. We are. Yeah. Right. And I guess that's something to be celebrated. We don't have to be in Israel to be free. Um, and that's wonderful. But I think it's a really useful conversation to have this year around the Seder table. The mm -hmm. idea of of whether we've stopped uh, only partway on our journey and, and what are the consequences of that? How does it affect our pact with God and, and the promises made uh, when we were freed? Right. I think those, those are really good questions. Or our Jewish identity. Right. Or our Jewish identity. How does it impact us? Yeah. Well, let me wish you and all of our listeners a very happy, joyous, and fulfilling Passover. Same to you. Thanks. 